You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of The Ministry for the Future, New York 2140-2312, the best-selling Mars trilogy. He's the winner of the Hugo Nebula and Locus Awards. His new book is The High Sierra, A Love Story. Thank you for joining me, Stan. My pleasure, Rick. It's good to be talking again. I wish it was in Santa Cruz, but this time not. (laughs) You know... As I read this book, there's temptation for me to think this. Over all these years we've been speaking, we've been speaking about your fiction. And, and this is the first piece of really nonfiction, so there's a temptation for me to think that it's going to be different. But what I've realized is that whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, your vision of the world and your mission as a writer is to convey your sensibility of what's real in this world and what matters in this world. And in that sense, this book is very much on a continuum with everything you've written. Well, I think that must be right. Um, I, I was uh, uneasy, extremely uneasy, to be writing nonfiction. And I've pondered that. I had a lot of time to ponder it. Um, why should that be? And I realized that I like novels. I feel comfortable when I'm writing a novel. It's been my whole life, and I, even though I can't explain how to do it um, because it's not a set of conscious instructions or anything like that, there's um, I, kn- I know that I know how to do it because the books are there, the novels are there. So that's good. Um, but <clears throat> what I realized when I started to write The High Sierra is that I always make up my narrators and my narrators are not me so that the well say the narrator for the Mars novels is kind of a formal and encyclopedic Um, the narrator for Antarctica is kind of jazzy and fast-paced there's specific narrators for Shaman and for Galileo's dream that are Uh, part of the story and identified as such. So in all my novels, I'm thinking up a narrator and that allows me to choose the sentences, the tone, the the style involved. And to tell you the truth, uh, outside readers might actually say, look, they all read the same to me. You always sound the same. But to me, there's huge differences and it helps me to figure out how to say what I say. So, okay, the High Sierra has a huge strand of memoir in it and therefore is about my youth and my life since then in the focused on the sierras but still um it's about as much of a autobiography as i will ever write and there i was caught in a a bizarre problem who's telling the story (laughs) who's the narrator because since i make them up i had to make up a version of myself i guess uh and it was a weird proposition and so I, I must have revised this text more than any of my other texts, um, which is saying a lot because I always revise intensively. But in this case, I was having a real problem finding 
how to say what I wanted to say and how to pitch it, so to speak, and in terms of tone. And I, you know, I'm not sure I solved the problem, but it certainly was uh, enough to make me um, um, uneasy as I went forward. You know, uh, uneasy is actually kind of the last uh, thing I think about this book. It feels so free and jazzy, and it's full of joy. This is a mm -hmm. novel that is all about joy. And I'd like you to just talk about that, communicating that. In a sense, it's like you're a trumpet player playing these wonderful riffs, just abstract in it, almost in a sense to just get us up and happy. Yes. Well, thank you for that. I'm thinking about John Muir and how in the time right before photography could really convey what things look like, he tried to describe the experience of the Sierra. Um, and he had recourse time and time again to the word glorious. Um, so a glory would be around things. I think in the religious technical terms, a, a, an aura of light, and he called it the range of light and everything was always glorious. Well, that's right. <laughs> he's, he's, He's an excellent writer, uh, and he um, was doing the best he could, but he very often he was writing for magazines. So, okay, his private journals are way better than his magazine writing, so people don't understand how good a writer he was because the bulk of his writing was for magazines, and the editors wanted something to talk to middle-class Americans of the turn of the last century. So he did what he could. For me... Um, uh, Joy is a good word for it, but how do you um, convey to readers the why of that? Like, there's something a little mysterious about about rocks and the high altitude um, biome of plants and animals that live up there. Um, uh, why should it be the case that when you're walking up there, you get this uh, beautiful sensation of of um, of it's it's both out of body but also deeply connected so it's a hard one and i i re took recourse in compound emotions like peaceful excitement or um beautiful terror or these these sierra compound emotions to try to particularize what what might spur the ultimate sensation of joyousness that to be up there is to be in a um more than real reality but but that too that doesn't quite capture it uh, eventually i came to this when you talk about it being inexpressible which i think is a pretty good way to try to convey some aspect of it you haven't really expressed it what you have said is literally true it's inexpressible so you can i mean i've got 560 pages there of of uh, chiseling away at the problem of trying to express it, but it remains a little inexpressible. But you know what? It's fun to try. Was this book written uh, just immediately in and only of itself, or was it written over uh, a period of years while you were working on other stuff? Um, mostly it was written in a single push, but the, you have noticed something that a few others have, or actually you just asked the question that few others have asked. I, I describe it early on in the book that in 2008, I was invited by Armando Quintero and Bill Tweed to join artists in the backcountry. And they set up a base camp 
down near the Mitre Basin for a week in 2008, a long week, and brought in about um, 15 artisan writers and then a support crew of maybe five, a, a cook and, um, and Mondo and Bill as guides. And we um, set up a rather vast base camp by my own um, standards of, of uh, backpacking with just a couple of friends. It was the first time I did anything like it. So, okay, the photographers produced um, photographs and the, um, the poets wrote poetry. I wasn't prepared, I was busy with novels, but just to show uh, my gratitude to Mondo and Bill, in the immediate aftermath of that trip, I wrote about, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 pages uh, description of the week. And it was sort of an experiment for myself. Well, that was in 2008. I put it away. I didn't have any use for it. Uh, I did send it to Mondo and Bill just to show them that I had tried. And then when I got the chance to write this book, it was the start of the pandemic. I was done with my contract. Ministry for the Future was the end of my contract with Orbit Books. And I talked to my wonderful editor, Tim Holman. I told him I wanted to write this Sierra book. Um, it was my um, chief desire to write the Sierra book. So uh, Tim said fine, because he's been a wonderful editor and mentor figure all along since 2009. Um, and he said fine, and um, maybe I can help out. I mean, I said publish it from orbit as a science fiction novel in which the Sierra Nevada is an alien. And he said no. <laughs> he said that would be bad. That would be bad for my publishing line orbit books and it would be bad for your book don't 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 be silly uh, but he was laughing and he said i can help you and he pushed the proposal along to his uh, effectively his boss because orbit is part of hachette and hachette is run by michael piche who is the ceo of hachette at this point uh, but michael piche used to be publisher and editor at little brown which is also part of hachette so Michael said, oh, I like this. I like it so much, I'll edit it for Little Brown. And so from his position as um, CEO of Hachette, he edited it wonderfully for Little Brown and, it, and it's come out you know, back in May from Little Brown. So it's still part of the Hachette group. I've got the same sales force as my science fiction novels. I've got a team uh, behind the book and designers and managing editors. They were all fabulously good as they are at Orbit. But of course, I never needed an art director before. And so uh, Evan Hansen Bundy uh, was my art director and kind of my working uh, editor. Uh, and, and he's the one that correlated and got into uh, the text, the photos in the right order and all that kind of stuff. So that's how the book came about. And so to, to get back to, the, to your original part of your question, I wrote almost all of it in the spring and summer of 2020 during the pandemic shelter in place, just spent every day. And it just poured out of me. I was ready to go. I, I would write many pages per day. like, And it wasn't neatly uh, divided into sections as it is in the published book. It just came to me that day. And it was, a, it was an intense chore to organize it into the format that you see it in now. And, and when I saw that I would use the same method that I did in Ministry for the Future, lots of chapters, lots of jumps in topics, lots of strands, I was actually quite worried because typically if you take the form or structure of um, 
uh, of a novel out of the previous novel, you're making a mistake. And I've made that mistake in the past. But in this case, it seemed right. And so I stuck with it. You know, one of the things that, that uh, struck me about this book was the sense of time in it. The sense of the way you, you manage to convey the sense of deep time in the Sierras. It seems to me that that is one of the primary characters or characteristics of the character of the Sierras is that they are old in a way that is really hard for humans in our firefly-like lives to wrap our brains around. Mm-hmm. It's so true. Um, I, I I have that feeling up there a lot. The and the Sierras are relatively young as mountains go, but that means they're twenty million years old uh, when they broke the surface. And so you see that when you look around, bare rocks like the bones of the earth, as people say, and it and it looks and feels that way. Um, but uh, but at the same time, you're still going through your moments. Your consciousness is floating around. You're taking step by step. It's sort of a um, the seconds are the moment is clearly the moment it's passing the day is passing and so you've got moment and eon or you've got the present and eternity and they're both kind of smacking you in the face at the same time and also you've got time when you're walking you can remember your whole life you can think about your future you can think about all kinds of things because you're not going to be doing anything that day except walking and this is i as i say in the book an altered state of consciousness our busy lives don't usually allow this kind of um, uninterrupted thought that is comes at a pedestrian pace. And, you know, Plato and Aristotle, Socrates, uh, these, these guys, Aristotle was called the peripatetics school of philosophy. They walked as they talked, often just in circles or rectangles around their gymnasium courtyard. It, they felt like their thinking was better and their talking was better if they were walking while they do it while they did it well this is kind of a thought that we've lost this is an idea of consciousness that we don't that i think automobiles and 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 the rest of modern life has somewhat uh, wiped out that realization that that thinking and talking happen at a kind of a pedestrian pace and that walking can help it especially if you're just going to walk all day for a week so um, yes, time, because you, you know, the, this Buddhist notion of stay, stay in the present, that's important. It's also kind of impossible. Our minds go to the past, they go to the future, the present is there. One thing about the series is the present is really smacking you hard. And so you don't, um, you do pay attention, especially if you're scrambling up something difficult and a little bit dangerous, then you're really in the present. But even just walking around up there thinking about other things, that that scenario, that 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 landscape that you're in and that you have to negotiate, that that pulls you into the present quite powerfully. But then you still have all these other temporal adventures. So, yes, it's a big part of it. And I I would say, I mean, I want to be accurate about this. I only spend, um, let's say, a month of every year in the Sierras. It's actually quite a lot for us. Usually took like three trips to get that much in or four because my longest trips would tend to be one week. And getting in four trips a year was a, an amazing achievement for a busy suburban house husband. Um, but for many years, I did do it. 
but it's not a big part of 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 my total life it's it's really um uh, i calculate that i've spent perhaps um less than two years of my life has been in the high sierras and you know now i'm 70 years old but there's something about that 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 time up there that has um colored all the rest of it has has cast a a glow through the rest of the time down below. I'm often thinking about the Sierras, planning the next trip, um, trying to figure out um, where to go next, and and trying to figure out why I want to do that so badly, and and never really pulling an answer together. But it's been a it it, it certainly um, the temporal aspect of it has been uh, is a major feature of of what is somehow compelling or attractive about it. You know, as I read this book, I actually bought the physical book. These days, my eyesight is going, and also my type, my handwriting is illegible. So the old days of using like little yellow stickies in in real physical books are gone because at one point I interviewed somebody about an 800 page book, and, and I could only read the, like about a third of the, my notes that I took part in. Oh. <laughs> so. Yeah. The electronic books work well because I can type and I can actually read the notes I take. This book, I got the physical book, and it was just such a pleasure to hold this book and read it and read your prose, which really seems to, in this book, be made to leap off a printed page. And the layout is beautiful. The pictures are are, are lovely. And it really has a, a flow to it, and I'm wondering, you you work closely with with the art director. That that I think is it comes through as we as we read it. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm not surprised, and I'm glad that you that you feel that way, and I feel that way myself. It is a beautiful thing. Um, they told me immediately. Um, we want to keep the focus on text, so uh, we understand that you want maps and photos. And we're happy to do that. We're going to make it an illustrated book. But this is a, a, a peculiar uh, combination where we need to keep the focus on your text, no matter how many photos are included. I said, fine, I'm a writer. That makes sense to me. Um, it was Michael Peace who said, I want to make it an inch wider than ordinary books. So it'll still fit on the bookshelves. It's not taller, but it's wider. And that gives some... Uh, expansion to the photos and it gives people the sense that this is a slightly different kind of book. Apparently Patty Smith's memoir of her early days with Robert Mapplethorpe in New York had been published perhaps by Little Brown. I think that's why they thought of that as an example. And of course they had Mapplethorpe's photos. And so um, I cannot match Robert Mapplethorpe, especially in terms of sharpness of focus. Um, uh, not to mention artistic sensibility, but I did have, you know, something like 15,000 photos of the Sierras taken by me and by Carter Scholes, Daryl Devinney, and Joe Holtz, my most constant companions up there. And they sent me all their favorite photos from their vast collections. And I got to look very closely like, okay, there's lots of pretty pictures of the Sierras, but if you're trying to illustrate a certain written point or an idea about the Sierras people haven't had before, then let's try to judge the photos on that basis, that they really are illustrating an idea and not just being pretty. Because 
pretty was kind of the the lowest bar. There's lots of the Sierras are gorgeous, but but to actually illustrate a point about the Sierras, that was how the selection began, and that was where uh, Evan Henson Bundy was a huge help to me because he he was the extra eye. He was the professional eye. And he said, well, that works. That one doesn't work. And we spent a lot of hours um, uh, in Zooms and then also by email exchanges going back and forth on it. And then the layout was there they're doing. Um, I just said, well, the photo should be somewhat near this text because the text is is the the photo will illustrate what the text is trying to say. And it was very true that a picture is worth a thousand words every once in a while, for sure. So, um, but they did the layout and I think they did a marvelous job. You know, one of the things about this book is your ability in the prose and in any section to seamlessly take us from your inner memoir and your visions of what's happening on the hiking trail right there in front of you and, and thus in front of us. And the prose in those sections is really interesting. And what's also wonderful is the way that you can seamlessly take us from where you are in the moment to a bigger point about the psychogeography, which is, I think, uh, an excellent term for what this book actually is. It's, it's a work of psychogeography. And, and uh, uh, Let me interrupt, Rick, to say psychogeology. Geology, exactly. Yeah, psychogeology. Because psychogeography is, to me, a redundant phrase. Uh, geography is always psycho uh, in the <laughs> sense that geography is about the relation of the human and the, and the earth. That's what that topic is. So I never liked the phrase psychogeography that was a little British pretentiousness. But uh, psychogeology, that I think is the idea. Um, and the way that you take us from your individual perspective to a bigger perspective to you know a straight nonfiction telling us about how the mountains came up the origins of the sierra club wherever you're going to go in that is that's a really wonderful uh, ability how did that come about was that did that just pour off your pen in that order or was there something happening where you went back and said okay now i need to do some of this in this part it's more the latter. It's a construct. Um, it poured off the pen in a random order of me out there in my front courtyard writing, okay, what do I want to write about today? I made lists of topics of things that I didn't want to forget to talk about because it struck me that they were interesting. That's, of course, the main criterion. And coming at it as a novelist, I thought, well, it can't just be uh, a grab bag, an encyclopedia, a miscellany, what's the order of information, why? And there, the backbone would be my memoir. Start young and ignorant, <laughs> very, very ignorant, and then go through life. And as I um, lived my life and went up to the Sierra again and again, I had particular uh, questions uh, or experiences that would make me think, well, why is it that way? Um, different kinds of trails, different, um, why are there high basins there that you don't see in the Swiss Alps? Questions would come to my mind through my life that I've been um, chiseling away at trying to get adequate answers to, and sometimes getting the answers in moments of revelation and um, the idea that the Alps had 10 times more glacial ice on them over their lifetime 
and they're about the same age as the Sierras, 10 times more ice has made big differences in the landscape. It makes sense the moment that you get the explanation, but before that, it's kind of mysterious. So I wrote it all up in a, in a slurry, and then I began to unpack it and tack it onto the memoir. And so the memoir is my personal life. Then the history, the human history of the Sierras, well, of course, you start with the Native Americans, you start with indigenous people, and the beautiful fact that you can tell indigenous people were up there a lot because of the chips of obsidian. The only remainder of their light touch on the land up there in the High Sierra is a whole lot of obsidian chips, which are not endemic to the Sierra Nevada. Any obsidian you find in the High Sierras, humans brought there. And that is an amazing tell if you are like an amateur archaeologist or if you're trying to think what did humans do here? And if you're on a hillside as we once were and you look to the west in the late afternoon and the whole hillside is sparkling in a way that was completely surrealistic and bizarre and you get up and you start walking around and realize the hill is just littered with tens of thousands of chips of, of black obsidian that are reflecting the light. And of course, only angled correctly do chips reflect the light. There were many more chips than there were spots of light. It was astonishing. Um, and I write about that in the book. Well, that was a moment where I had to think hard and try to learn more. So that uh, there are asynchronies because of that in the text. My life proceeds as a memoir through the decades of my life in the Sierras. Um, and as a little bit of the rest of my life story too. How did the Sierras affect my writing? How did I meet Lisa? What did we do up there? That kind of thing. But then also the human time up there needed to go to the indigenous people first and then the uh, European Americans, the settler colonials, as we call them now. What did they do when they first hit the Sierras? And then what about the Sierra Club? And now what about modern time? Well, my education and all those things actually came at different points in my life. And it was relatively late in life that I began to understand more fully the indigenous presence in the High Sierra. Um, and, and here's the thing, they didn't winter up there. Nobody did. So it was their summer home. And I used to think, well, summer home, I have a summer home in Maine. You know, they, it was a way to get out of the heat. Whether they were coming up from the west side or they were coming up from the east side, they were getting out of baking heat in the summers and going up to a cool place. And then they were meeting up there. And the languages are similar on both sides of the Sierra, which is very um, instructive as to how they might have lived. They were mutually comprehensible languages. And so they summered up there. Well, if you are a nomadic people, then your various homes are all your real homes. Even if you don't happen to spend 100% of your time there, your lifestyle is back and forth. You have a summer place, you have a winter place. That's pretty common. Well, in this case, the summer place was the High Sierra. That was their real home. And I've found, my friends and I have stumbled across and we've seen on maps somewhere between half dozen and a dozen obsidian clusterings that prove that they were up there. And every once in a while, we'll be up in a high remote pond. Nobody ever spent any time there as a permanent encampment. It's too remote and high, and there will be a few obsidian chips. So there were ceremonial sites or party sites. I don't know that you can make that distinction, but what you can see is that indigenous people were up there a lot. So, so as I ordered the text, what I ended up doing was uh, trying to make 
my life, the, the spine, and then human uh, interactions with the Sierra, a second strand that happened at its own speed, but also chronological. And then the miscellany topics, I popped in where it seemed appropriate. You know, partway in, you revealed to us, and I think this is just absolutely fascinating, that you speak aloud when you're by yourself and walking in the Sierra. And I, and I think that, that that goes a long way to explaining how this got written, what it got written, the way it was written, and, and in a sense, a lot about you and the way you write. It was such a, a beautiful and well-done kind of revelation. Could you talk about that? I can try. Um, it sounds a little silly when you put it like that. Um, I have not hiked by myself very much in the Sierras as a percentage of my total time up there. But when I'm hiking with my friends, there will be uh, sometimes one friend, sometimes two, often three lesser times we've had larger groups in the 90s. And so as hiking along, a lot of times you're in conversation with the person closest to you. So talking up in the Sierras is kind of normal. It's a conversation as well as a hiking trip. Uh, and that's another advantage of backpacking is time to catch up and have a real conversation uh, rather than just quickly um, uh, gathered exchanges of information, perhaps with other people around such that everything is all broken up. This is actually sustained conversation with friends. Um, but so when I'm by myself, I tend to continue in that vein. And also when you're hiking with other people, very often you'll get separated from them on the trail by more than earshot. Everybody takes their own pace going both uphill and downhill and you spread out on the trail over perhaps a quarter mile of trail and it doesn't matter because you'll, you'll meet up eventually if you're all on the same trail or if you're within sight of each other on non-trail areas. So when I'm by myself, I'll, I'll, I'll be um, narrating the scene like a sports reporter or by a or just it's a it's a form of entertainment. What would you say if you were just talking to yourself um, and also singing? Um, since I don't have a great voice and I'm not a singer and not reliably in tune or any of that, it's just basically except for church with my mom, where we would happily harmonize with each other so that and I was a trumpet player because of my mom. So I can carry a tune on a trumpet. And so I know what I should be doing. So you can sing to yourself when there's no one else to be disturbed by your singing. And um, I, because of my mom, again, I have the Sound of Music soundtrack more or less memorized. And I'm not good at memorizing songs or lyrics. I mean, I'm quite terrible at it, really. But that one I know. And when you're in the Sierras, the Sound of Music seems extremely appropriate. And it kind of passes the time. It's entertaining. You know, can you still remember the lyrics to The Lonely Goat Herd or... Um, you know, the various smaller songs um, in sound and music that are not the big famous ones. Well, strangely, I sort of can, but I don't want to inflict it on my backpacking mates, although they've all heard it and, have, you know, they keep their distance. Uh, but when you're on your own, there's nobody to bother. You can do what you want. You know, one of the things uh, about this book that, that I found so fascinating was that um, the your 
sense of moving from one subject to another one topic to another and I think you do do that really well and it, it sounds like it's something that happened after the fact after the writing that there was a writing and then there was kind of architecture and then more writing to glue over the architecture and create the the finished edifice so to speak and I'm wondering if you talk about that part of the architecture of the book. Sure. Um, and to a certain extent, I have. And for sure, it's constructed. And I, I felt like I could bring uh, whatever unconscious craft of being a novelist. Um, what's the overarching story here? And if it's the story of the Sierras and or my interaction with the Sierras as one prominent strand of it, then you've got, in architectural terms, you've got... Uh, one big uh, arc would be my life. Another one would be the history of humans in the Sierra and how they've taken care of the Sierras, which is really unusual. The, um, the national park movements, the wilderness areas, the way that there's no roads between uh, Tioga Pass Road and the far south of the Sierra. You have to go around the Sierra to the south and the Tioga Pass Road splits the whole Sierra Nevada about in the middle. But the High Sierra, which is that area of the southern half, there's no roads crossing it. That's kind of amazing. So another, the human story. My story, the human story, the geological story, and then the animals story, the biome. And that has to do with ice. So you get into the, the glacial history. So these are all different uh, strands that needed to be braided together. So getting away from architecture to something more like weaving or tapestry. You, 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 you have one bright piece, uh, maybe even mosaic. Um, you, you, you get the picture. It's a, it's a melange of different elements that need to be made into a pattern. You can only read one sentence at a time. Reading is very sequential. So how do you make an overall pattern out of a sequence of sentences? Well, this is, that's been my life, uh, is figuring that out, um, sequencing stuff that is really simultaneous um, and uh, here I, I definitely lifted a lot of the methodology from ministry for the future and when i'm writing my books i can't remember them uh in my head anymore uh and i'm starting with the years of rice and salt so in the 21st century i guess you'd say i started getting big blocks of butcher paper you know those long rolls and taking a long roll of butcher paper and cutting it off and taping it to my bookshelf so it covered all the books. I needed big space and I don't have any wall space. And then colored <laughs> pen, colored marker pens. And I would the different strands I would uh, I would uh, use different colors for, and mark on the butcher paper a kind of flowchart um, uh, of the book so I could see it with my eyes and that would help me remember it in my head and shuffle things around. It was so intense with Ministry for the Future, which has 106 chapters, that I got out a whiteboard and so that I could erase the colored pen marks and make alternative versions because I kept on having to change things. High Sierra was much the same. Um, I, once I had the various, uh, once I had the first drafts written, I began to label what kind of chapters I had, where they seemed to fit, and then started sequencing them and see how it read. And to a certain extent, in the end, it's a, 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 there's a pattern, but in the end, it's kind of a matter of feelings and a little arbitrary. 
I'll just talk about marmots here because, <laughs> you know, there's no there's no natural place where marmots come into the story. And I also had to sort out the story of my friend Terry, my Martin, my mountain guru, a friend that I met in, well, sixth grade, I would say, who by the fortunes of um, coincidence and also choice, we ended up living in the same towns for most of our lives. And he died in early 2019. I had to organize his story and also the story of Michael Blumline, whom you also knew, the great mm -hmm. science fiction writer. Absolutely. Michael, yeah, Michael was a, a Sierra person. He and his wife, Hillary Gordon, were Sierra people. And um, I only got in one trip that was just me and Michael uh, before he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And then we went two or three more times whilst he had only part of his lungs with him. Um, so I had to tell Michael's story too. Well, some of that turned out just to be roughly chronological, but sequencing was tough. And, you know, if, they, if, if this was a novel, I would not have organized it that way. But of course, real life doesn't organize itself like novels. You know, one of the things you said earlier that, that interested me and something that's kind of been on my mind is the idea of having time to yourself where you have no direction, essentially. And, and hiking gives you that kind of time, other than hiking, if, especially if you're by yourself, or even if you're with friends. There's something that, this is something we've really lost, in, in, especially in the 21st century, but it was probably, uh, you know, getting scarce in the 20th century, is just the time to sit around and, and when there's nothing else attacking you you know this is something you used to be able to do as a kid it's much less likely now um where you're just sitting around and letting your mind go where it wants to go and i think that one of the things times that we can still do that now is when we're reading and so there's kind of i think a continuum between Reading and being involved in a in a book like this, which is really involving. I mean, I, it, it's like I went on a like a three week hike with uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. <laughs> it, it, it's a wonderful experience. So talk about you know this continuum between continuing to write, which is for I think unfortunately a shrinking audience, but also the the shrinking to the idea of time spent without a point. Yeah, well, that's a good connection. I like that between uh, reading and uh, walking in the mountains, because um, especially say you're walking the John Muir Trail, which many people do now. Um, so that's like the novelist, uh, that's like the story, the string of sentences that you've agreed to follow. And so you're following a path when you're reading a book, these black marks on the page, but it's very creative. You're taking those um, written sentences on the page and in your mind, an adventure is happening that there's something extremely co-creative about reading and especially reading fiction where you have to be so very generous and you have to have that trick of the um the coleridge phrase the willing suspension of disbelief that you're re willing to put yourself under in a kind of a hypnosis or a dreamlike state where you're letting the writer 
go ahead and uh, guide the experience. You're going to go ahead and uh, co-create it in your own uh, generous way. And something happens. And I'm a novel reader myself. I love it dearly. When I finish one novel, I wait a little while to get over the impact of it. And then I start another one. And I mean, within a couple days, uh, usually. And uh, nonfiction is just what I have to read to get information about the world. But novels are what I truly love because of that um, that sense that you're living 10,000 lives when you're a novel reader. So when you're walking in the Sierras, you, you have this, um, oftentimes you have a self-appointed goal, like I'm going to get around Mount Clarence King in a week. And that'll involve some trails, some cross-country passes. It's a circumambulation. There's a goal. It's not very often that we've gone up there and just wandered randomly and said, well, what are we gonna, where are we going to go today? That actually begins to feel um, burdensome or pointless. You, a goal of where you're getting to, uh, some kind of nomadic directed goal, this is somewhat like you know making it into a novelistic experience. We're doing something. We're on a, a quest. It's got a story to it and a point. And then seeing what the terrain makes you do. Um, yeah, it's, so it isn't exactly... Um, free association. It's not reverie in the sense of Rousseau or De Quincey, where you just sit and ponder whatever thought comes into you. There is a direction either given to you by the, the text of the novel or by the, the landscape itself and your, and your decision, I'm going to go from X to Y on this trip and see if I can do it in a week. Um, and indeed, you kind of have to do it in a week or people at home will be intensely worried. So it, it puts a little spur in your butt to do more than just sit by a lake. And some people who I've been in the mountains with, well, they prefer to just sit by a lake and, and um, contemplate the lake and the world without this goal-directed, well, we're trying to get from X to Z and we have to hustle a little and figure out ways and route find. So there are differences, I think. That, and, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's fruitful to think of the two together to try to unpack what are you doing? Why are you up there? It's just, this is strange. This is like recreational. This is free time. It isn't, you can't really put much of a moral purpose to reading novels or to uh, backpacking. And I love both of them. So um, in a, to a certain extent, you have to think up a defense of it. Well, I do it because it's fun. And this is in California, that works pretty well. Um, um, but, it, but it is a, an admission of, of, of privilege, of middle-class time that has been created to do fun, that where you actually have the leisure time to have fun. All of these are constructs that come out of a larger life. And, and, um, and, and it's, it's um, interesting to try to unpack them. And, and I, I don't even like to think that I would need to defend them. Um, but, you know, in this world, um, it certainly is worth discussing it. You know, I, one of the things about your books that I think is, is true is that you're, you have a, a real sense of place in whatever you write, wherever all of your books, your novels have a real sense of place. And, and I'm wondering how much of that comes from your the sense of place 
your ability to derive just a very intense sense of place in the Sierras? Uh, it's a good question. I, I, when you say that, I think, yes, indeed, I really have a strong sense of place. I would presume everybody does. But I wonder if for me, growing up in the suburbs and now having lived a life in a small suburban town, that the bulk of my life has been in what you might call no place. Um, trapped in a room. I mean, a lot of us live our lives in rooms when you don't have to. That's one thing I've done is gotten outdoors. And California is very um, uh, mild, benign Mediterranean climate. You can spend a lot of time outdoors that people typically in our civilization spend indoors by default. That's, that's a mistake, I think. So, okay, place. Uh, bulk of the year, I'm living in a version of no place. Poor old Davis, California. It has no topography whatsoever. It's flat as a tabletop. And I mean, literally flat as a tabletop. I sometimes will take a 10 mile walk in Davis and my Strava will show that I've gone 12 vertical feet during that <laughs> 10 mile walk. That's how flat Davis is. And there's no water to speak of. Puda Creek is kind of between two levees. It's an artificial thing. It's a sad little puppy of a creek. It doesn't flow. It's, um, it's got a legally amount of water flowing through it from the Berryessa Dam, but that isn't just enough to keep it alive in, in hopes the salmon will come back. So it's a no place. And then I grew up in Orange County, California. It was just suburbs and orchards, and the ocean was our salvation when... My friends whom I still backpack with, we met as body surfers. We met in high school and, and even back to elementary school. Go to the beach, go body surfing, come back home and feel a little more sane. But suburban life when I was a kid was also a no place. So then when I got into, well, once into the Grand Canyon when I was a teenager because of my great aunt being a missionary to the Navajo, uh, that blew my mind. And then the ocean, of course, a permanent reminder, an, an urge to get into the ocean. And I know as a Santa Cruz person, you know what I mean by that. Uh, and then the High Sierras came to me because of our friend Terry and taking us up there when we were undergrads at UC San Diego and utterly ocean people. The inland, the deserts of Southern California, the mountains of Southern California, not impressive to me. They didn't spark anything. But I got up to the Sierras because Terry took us up there. And that was the big aha moment. I love this place. And ever since then, that's been a strong feeling that has taken me to mountains everywhere and taken me to Antarctica. Um, and I'm interested in these wilderness spaces now in a way that grew. It wasn't a childhood thing. It was maybe childhood deprivation and adult deprivation, having lived in Davis for so long that makes me super attuned to other places that have topography, landscape, wilderness, what have you. Almost anything looks interesting after Davis. You know, um, I, I, I'd be remiss not to mention this, that uh, every time I see on the news, and I remember this vividly, seeing the first news of a heat dome in uh, uh, Calgary that caused, you know, or that, I think it was in Canada, that caused, like, you know, an entire town to burn down. Just the wildfire just ravaged through it. Every time I see that, I all I can do is think of the opening of the Ministry for the Future and think, oh, my God, you know, it, it it's here. It's coming to us. And I'm wondering for you, 
having created that book and in a sense lived in that future, how that feels for you to see the this thing happening, uh, to my mind, a lot more <laughs> quickly than I expected. Uh, well, um, I would say this, that it was an easy call. It did not take much predictive power. Um, the scientists have been uh, calling out the danger for years. Uh, there is a, a, a moment that came where the scientific and medical community combined together and suddenly began to tell the world, humans can't adapt to higher temperatures above a certain point because a combination of heat and humidity that's called wet bulb 35, it's just a heat index, would uh, poach people and you could be naked indoors with a fan on you and still die of hyperthermia, uh, of overheating. You'd be poached internally. You'd, the sweat wouldn't work anymore because of the humidity. And this wet bulb 35 has been hit in Pakistan, outside of Chicago once in the, in the early 90s. And it's gonna be more and more likely so that, if that, this was maybe 2015, 16, 17, I was beginning to read about this and it was kind of news. The story was being put together and some scientists were saying, look, this attitude of uh, certain portions of industrial society, sometimes called eco-modernism, that humans were so clever that we would just have to adapt to world average temperatures rising even like three or four degrees Celsius as an average, that that was impossible, that that was going to subject um, half of humanity to fatal uh, heat combinations of heat and humidity um, and it wasn't just the tropics recently we've seen projections and news stories the entire midwest and southern part of the united states because wet heat is the fatal part and dry heat you can sustain a bit more the american west of course will be equally hot but it will be drier heat and more survivable the that news, which, as I say, was, again, the kind of thing that the scientific community is jumping up and down about, and the world media culture is like, oh, gee, that's interesting. Let's go on to the next um, incredible thing. And so internet culture is uh, overdosed by information to the point where really crucial information will get the same week's worth of articles as really trivial information and the sorting mechanism between the trivial and the crucially important is inadequate let's say so i wrote ministry uh, there was no predictive element involved on my part i'm just reading the scientific literature and seeing oh this is a danger and people aren't talking about it not only that people are still talking about adaptation as if we could adapt to something that the human body can't adapt to. And maybe they would talk about air conditioning or everybody moving to cooler places. I mean, it, to the extent it was talked about at all, the responses were extremely inadequate and, and, and lame. They were, people were sticking to positions that were only uh, viable, competent positions around 1990. And here it was 2015 and people were stuck in intellectual positions that were always contrary to what the scientists were saying. And so these were humanities people or economists or philosophers or political science, people poorly trained in biology and physics 
and science in general to the point where they thought they could judge better than the IPCC and the scientific community on issues that were strictly scientific judgment calls. So as a science fiction writer and a believer in science, I can um, charge into these debates and I can write a scene. I can write a novel about the ramifications of ignoring reality and how it will hammer us. I tried it in my DC novel that I now call Green Earth. That was 40 signs of rain, 50 degrees below, 60 days and counting. Well, that was a, a mess, uh, partly because of the world situation in the early 2000s, partly because of choices I made as a novelist. Um, and Ministry for the Future, the situation is more intense. And the choices that I made as a novelist were cannier, better so that Ministry for the Future has been read and taken up and understood and used as a, a tool for thought in a way that uh, Green Earth was not. And that's, as I say, partly the differences in the two novels and partly differences in the world situation. But for sure, the response to Ministry has been um, stunning, I would say. I, I could never have predicted it. It has gone out there and um, been uh, grabbed hold of by people who I now understand it is this. They were desperate for a story that tells the story of civilization uh, coping successfully with climate change and not in a way that looks easy or uh, unrealistic. I, I thought of it as the best case scenario that you could still believe in while you were reading it. And I seem to have hit that adequately for uh, a lot of people reading this book, it was the, it's like they're grabbing hold of driftwood, a piece of driftwood out in the ocean, and they're drowning. And they grab hold of this piece of driftwood with a certain amount of force and urgency that um, is moving to me. But it also, part of the emotion is a growing sense of uh, fear. Like, there should be more stories like this. We don't have a good sense of how we're gonna to get to a good result. We're in such danger. Climate change is already hitting us. We're still burning fossil fuels way too fast. A lot of people still don't believe in it or believe in doing anything about it. There's a what I call the Gertrude Damerung, the God damning of the world, that uh, since we're in terrible trouble, let's just destroy everything and get it over with. That, attitude is obviously prevalent in especially in the united states so um in that what a, what a, might be a sense of, of pleasure and triumph oh my god i i wrote a novel that um people are paying attention to has a big element of dread in it too like people are grabbing hold of it uh, out of a sense of urgent fear and they uh, a desire that the story could be believed in that we would have a better plan or that maybe things will work out there are so many people who are already working in ministries for the future already they have that feeling like i'm working for the future as hard as i can and it looks like it's not going to work and then there's a story that says well it might work let's keep working well there's an intensity to the response that is way beyond literature per se and i've had to it's, it, I've had to cope with that because it's taken over my life. I haven't written it. I mean, I wrote the Sierra book. Thank God for that. But most of the, my days I don't spend writing. I spend them talking about ministry for the future. It's more important right now. So I have to do it. But it is bizarre. Are you working on a new novel? 
No, I I have only the vaguest in, inklings. Um, I have an idea for a play. I want to write that first. And then I have a, a couple ideas for novels that what I want them to be is very short novels. <laughs> I want to make a formal change and admit that I'm into what some people would call late style. Mm. And also I think it'd be good for me. If I intend to write a novella, um, things will change. And here, this comes out of Ministry for the Future also. The experience of me, for me, of writing Ministry for the Future was most intense when I was doing those eyewitness accounts. Um, one chapter, one person, often anonymous, something happened, they're telling it about. And I realized the eyewitness account is a genre that isn't the same as fiction. Um, and that there were, but fiction can steal from any other form, uh, any other genre and put it to use as a fictional form. And I'm interested now in ways that if I do go, well, I presume I will, when I get back to writing fiction, which I'm gonna enjoy thoroughly, I am intrigued by um, the eyewitness account to the point where I might try something I haven't done for many years, which is write a first person novel. And I also, I'm gonna be trying to keep it to, uh, you know, 120 pages. So we'll see how that works out. <laughs> it might not work. I mean, this is, that's how vague my ideas are about my next novel is that I have more form than I have content. Although I have some content too. I've been speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson. His new book is The High Sierra, A Love Story. Thank you for joining me, Kim. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. Um, um, we've been doing this a long time and once in Santa Cruz, um, uh, at least once. And so I hope we'll keep on doing it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.